We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hi, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I'm a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and honored to be that. I'm also the president of Fire Consulting and Case Review International and um, the leader of an alliance of 200 private investigators called Consolidated Fire Investigation Services. And I, I hope that you're out there listening, all of our, our people. This is Donna Ingram, and I'm a past director of the IAAI and have almost 30 years in fire and fraud industry. That's right. And so today we are honored to have a celebrity uh, with us, Rabbi Mel Glazer, um, uh, originally a native of Atlanta, Georgia. He's, he's about to move uh, down south, but uh, down to um, uh, Florida soon. But he is a graduate uh, after his rabbinic ordination at the Jewish the- Theological Seminary in New York in 1974. He's, um, he's went all over the United States and has uh, occupied uh, pulpits in, uh, in the United States, Canada, and South Africa. And um, we have some uh, friends in South Africa, so we'll talk about that a little later. Um, he became interested in grief when his father died at, when Mel was 12. And uh, he didn't know at the time that he was going to become a grief expert, but he did. And he has, he has written uh, a book called uh, GPS for Grief and Healing. And uh, he started a year ago his own a weekly radio show called From Morning, M-O-U-R-I-N-G, to Morning, M-O-R-I-N-G, on the Voice America Network. He's uh, presently in, uh, in a little bit of a sabbatical from that, um, and there, but he's in reruns because he's moving, and he's moving from uh, Colorado Springs to, um, to down in uh, Central Florida, uh, Rabbi of uh, Temple Shalom of Central Florida. And, um, and, I, and, it, and it says you're moving to the, the villages, uh, an active senior adult community where you expect to be one of the youngest people. Is that correct, uh, That's Rabbi? correct. I'm only 70. Yeah, well, ah, shalom to you, and and uh, and I welcome you very much. You, you, um, you and I are of uh, of the same, um, uh, well, age. So come on, don't be that. afraid of it. Don't be I'm afraid a, of it. Up, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I said, yeah. Well, see, my daughter is a constant is a constant reminder of she does. The, uh, we do a, a pre show. Oh, Rabbi, and uh, and she constantly is saying how old she is, and and you know I just look a lot younger, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, she doesn't think so. Anyway, Rabbi, yeah, thank you for being here. Um, we have a, a a serious topic, but we're gonna we're gonna try and interject a little bit of life into this because I understand there's no other way you can be. You're 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 uh, you have like thirty thousand listeners. Is that correct? Forty three, but who's counting? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> forty-three, twelve, <laughs> and a half. Yeah, it was a small child. Go ahead. Uh, anyway, so um, I was. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier, you and I today. And um, when I was going through um, college, I decided to get a, a fifty-seven hours of psych. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me, 
And so um, one of the things that I took was a, was a course on death and dying, and uh, primarily um, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying was, uh, was used as a, as a sort of a text. And then we went all over to, um, you know, funeral homes and mortuaries and stuff. How did you, um, you wrote a book. Um, and uh, I know you, you got involved in because of your dad's death. But um, did you study this uh, when you were becoming a rabbi? Did you study uh, a lot of uh, grief counseling? You know, it's interesting. Um, I did not, actually. At that time... Back in the dark ages, when I was in a rabbinical school, they didn't spend a lot of time on on grief. Uh, so everything I've learned, I've learned by getting a doctorate in grief from Princeton Theological Seminary and 43 years in the rabbinate of personal experience. And you, you sort of learn by doing. You learn yes. what to say, you learn what not to say. It's... It's a real education that way. But no, I did not learn about grief in uh, rabbinical school. You know, because, well, um, yeah, I guess we all have, since death is such a, an integral part of our lives, we, you know, we lose our parents, we lose uh, other loved ones uh, throughout. Um, I, I used to be a police detective, and I had a, I worked homicide for a while. And, uh, and, you know, and I dealt with people's uh, families and uh, that's, um, you know, the, the departed is, uh, is one thing and you're going to handle them in a, in a certain way. But the, the, uh, it's always interesting to me about the reactions of, uh, of the people. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about the different kinds of reactions that people um, do, such as like they become stoic, other ones become hysterical, other ones, you know, just uh, uh, just are, you know, just overcome with grief. I was wondering if you would just talk about a, little, a few of the ways that sure. you deal with Sure, I'd be happy them. to. Thank First, um, you're right. Everybody grieves their own way. There are certain patterns that Kubler-Ross talked about, but at the end of the day, every family uh, does it their own way, and, and it depends on the circumstances. I mean, let's say dad was, uh, he had Alzheimer's for three years, mm-hmm. and he kept deteriorating. At the end, he didn't know his family. Well, they sort of pre-mourned his death. So that when he really died, they, it was a blessing to them. Yes, yes. Because they, did, they had already done the work that they needed to do. That's one kind of reaction. Another kind of reaction is, um, and you see it all the time, you know, if somebody dies by a trauma, a fire, as an example, then you get different reactions. You get disbelief. You get blaming, you get, oh my God, how can I go on without fill in the blank? Right. Some, right. some people, some people are calm about it because they realize that, you know, the good Lord put us on this world and, and created natural laws. And sometimes natural laws mean that there are fires. And my grandmother, for example, was very accepting of death. And she lived to be about 85. So she'd seen 
a lot of a lot of her friends had died, and while we younger than she were constantly in tears and crying and mourning and moaning and all that, she was very stately and she just accepted the death as something normal, which of course it is. the The problem is the different kinds of death. Mm-hmm. Now, I I would imagine you know that the families, the relatives of somebody who dies in a fire are going to relate to that way differently than what we'd call a quote-unquote normal death. Right, because they're just so traumatic um, when they're there one day and they've talked to them. I I hear many times when we go out on these uh, fatality cases, well, I just talked to them yesterday. It's like, um, how can this be? That's a little bit of that disbelief you were talking about, isn't it? And it's, it's, I mean, on top of all that is that society never teaches us how to talk to the bereaved, how to talk to mourners. Uh, we, we learn, we want to comfort them, but we don't know how to do it correctly. So we end up saying things to survivors that don't help but hurt. it's interesting that you say that because that's something i know in my uh 50 plus years in being around uh she had to do that she had to do that traumatic both traumatic and normal death one of the things that i have noticed is how you it is I'll tie it back to the first responders for our show. Everything that you do is being watched, observed, and can be of an impact. So nurses, doctors, first responders, uh, people that are around, you know, need to be concerned about their behavior, not laughing, even though that's their coping mechanism (laughs) with a trauma not do that in front of the family or things like that. I know that I've had my own personal experiences uh, when I lost my mom five years ago, and it was semi-traumatic. A couple of years, she had emphysema. <clears throat> I knew she was dying, but she caught pneumonia, so it was pretty sudden. She died sooner than I expected. And some of the behaviors of the nurses have stayed with me. I'm not going to, you know carry on about it, but I remember feeling appalled at some of their behaviors. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that behavior-wise? Yeah. When you're a caregiver, like nurses, like clergy, like doctors, there has to be a, a distance between you and your patient. And you have to treat it as a job, not You don't get involved personally with your clients, with your patients, because when you do, you often make the mistake that you talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll start to get personal with them. And if you say the wrong thing, you can have a terrible effect on what happens to this family. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a very brief but, but funny story. I had a guy in a previous synagogue, and he was in his 90s, and he was dying, and he was in hospice, and I was there with the family, and we knew 
that he was going to die today. And his wife couldn't deal with it. So she kept saying, sigh. She was screaming at him. He was in a coma. He didn't hear her, thank God. Sigh, don't die. I need you. Sigh, don't die. Finally, sigh dies. He takes his last breath. And she was so upset, she started beating on his chest. She thought she was doing CPR, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, so I figured, okay, you're a rabbi. Say something intelligent to make this lady accept. So I took her in my arms and I said, listen, Sai is he's going to be okay. He's going to be with his parents. So she takes a look up at me and she says, Rabbi, Sai couldn't stand his parents. <laughs> and that's exactly the reaction, yours, that yes. I got from the family members. And they're laughing hysterically. Now, the nurses outside are wondering about my sanity because they, know, they all knew who I was because I was the only rabbi in town. And they're wondering, Sai just died. Why is everybody laughing? What did that rabbi do? Turns out that what I did was to break the tension in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. That was a good thing. It, it was, and, it, it, and Rabbi, yes, it, we, as a police officer uh, and detective, we've worked, I've worked many of uh, a scene where there's been fatalities and, uh, and also as a private investigator. And um, sometimes you'll see on, on the news or something, you'll see a, a devastating murders of, uh, of even many children uh, and, 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 and parents. And you'll see some two te- detectives outside and one of them's laughing and, and um, the family's not around generally, but, but uh, you know, the, uh, the media catches it. And sure. um, I just want people to know that that, that is, that is a defense mechanism and, and it's uh, something they're trying to do to break the tension to not let it get in. Cause you know, a lot of us had children that same age and, and all that stuff. And, and, right. uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's a, uh, and I know that you experienced that uh, yourself, don't you, uh, Rabbi, when you talk to people? I do, and when I talk to the helping community, I say to them, look, you have to care about the caregivers. You have to care about yourselves. You can't just care about the person lying in bed who may be dying. You have to care about yourselves, and that's why. You know, I do a lot of uh, lectures at hospitals and hospices for the staff. And we, we talk about this very issue, about how there has to be, you can't get personal because you're on a job and they look at you and they listen to you and they're affected by what you say. And so you have to be part of a community of your people so that you can spend the energy that you need to help your patient, your client. It's right. very I, difficult because, yes. you know, we all have um, tension. Out, we, we all need tension outlets. And sometimes we say the wrong thing, like I did in that room. Hmm. It turned out okay, but only because I was lucky and God was with me. Right. Uh, but it could have been disastrous. 
Well, and I'll give you an example, and I, I'm going to put this out on the air, and it's something that uh, not a lot of people know. When when my mom was dying, I had been at the hospital you know, for weeks. My sisters and I and, my, and their kids, my kids, had been there. And I really needed, I knew she was actively dying. I knew it was going to be a while. And I, I said to the nurse, and I'm the oldest, that I needed to go home and get a shower. And, you know, because my hair was a mess. And she said, oh, you're that one. The one that's concerned, you're the vain one. She yeah. actually said that to me. Oh, my God. She gosh. pegged us each and labeled us each. And I tell you, it's been five years, and I'm in my 50s, and that stayed with me. That hurt my feelings really bad. So there's a good example of someone exercising <clears throat> their knowledge about people, but at the wrong time. Well, and I would suggest that part of you, when you were called vain, part of you felt vain. Mm-hmm. True. And that's, that's the exactly part right. that's really hurting you now well and there's the thing you're a professional exactly and there's the thing is that if you say something to someone while they are grieving in that process and it hits a nerve so to speak yep. uh, that's what stays with them so it really need to be mindful i i try my best to be very mindful around people when they're mourning yes and firefighters uh many times uh Rabbi, they uh, they uh, have to pull people out uh, and yeah. try to resuscitate them, uh, but in many cases they're already gone. And um, and 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 you know, they, thank goodness that now um, there are more of an acceptance uh, in the in the first responder community, including fire and police, uh, in getting some counseling, particularly on major incidents where a lot of people are. Killed. I can't imagine how it must have been to be a first responder at that Sandy Hook school right. when those children were were killed. Um, uh, is there anything? I mean, bringing it down to, you know, what do you say? What can you say? You can't. I mean, I go to. <laughs> I I guess I'm fortunate. I've been asked to to uh, give a, a, a few eulogies in my life, and uh, I've been to many. Of the uh, of the of the funerals of of my compatriots and uh, and other um, people who have gone before me in uh, in fire investigations, and they asked me to do eulogies. But it's very difficult uh, to talk to families and say, you know, I mean, you say st- stupid things, uh, in, in, inane things. I, I've heard people say, "Well, he's in a better place now," and right. well, at right. least he's out of pain and all yep. that. So, so what do you think about? What do you say? Uh, I agree with you 100%. It's very difficult. And so what I do at funerals, what I used to do at funerals, is what most clergy still do at funerals. That is, the day before the funeral, they take a pen and pad of paper, and they go to the family's house, and they say, tell me about Jack. And they tell stories, and they tell this, that, and the other, and the clergy person writes it all down. I used to do this. And then I would go home that night, and I would make a promise that I wouldn't go to sleep until I wrote a eulogy. What was that eulogy? I would regurgitate all those stories that they told me about Jack. I'd put a little biblical ribbon on it, and that would be the eulogy. 
I don't do that anymore. I, when I go see families um, the day or two before the funeral, first of all, I know them pretty well because I've been here 10 years. And you, you, there's, a, there's a level of trust that they have in me. Second, what I do is I invite two or three members of the family to tell stories about Jack. Mm-hmm. Who can tell them better than I can because they are their personal stories. I get up after the last person is done, and I always come with some biblical thought or some Jewish thought, some religious something, and I wrap it up. But I don't do stories. I don't do biographies anymore. Mm-hmm. Because if you knew him, you knew what his biography was. And if you didn't know him, I'm not the guy who's responsible for telling you, you know, what his, what his job was. You'll ask a member of the family. I talk about what their values are. I talk about what they stood for. So I've buried a couple of firefighters, not a lot, thank God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've buried people who have drowned. And in each case, one of the things I make sure to say is they died doing what they loved. Mm-hmm. And and what about us? How do we want to die? Do we want to die worrying about the checkbook and the uh, makeup and the car model that we draw? Or do we want to, you know, be doing something that we love and die that way? I find that to be comforting. And so do the people who are there. People come up to me afterwards. And because it gives them not even a rationalization, but sort of it makes it better. Uh, Listen, everybody wants the world to make sense. And we know, you and I, the three of us know, that the world doesn't always make sense. And firefighters die. And pilots die. And buses hit people. And terrorists kill people. And so life doesn't make sense, but we need the world to make sense. So we, we tell stories. We have myths. We, when I say he died doing what he loved, that was true and not true. He didn't know that he was going to go diving and die. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how can you know that? When you're a firefighter... Um, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the smoke's going to get you. You don't know if the walls are going to fall in and, and, and the fire's going to get you. You don't have any idea. But you do it because it's a mission. It's not a job. It's more than a job. It's a mission. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing I want to say uh, is that I believe that when I was growing up, and you were growing up, so firefighters and police were... You know, they were fine. It was good. You needed them. You needed them and all that. After 9-11 happened, I believe it changed America totally. You're because absolutely now, right. You're when you right. see firefighters, especially in uniform, or you see police in uniform, you go up to them and you'll thank them. There's a total different layer of respect, which I think is wonderful. It's not just that they 
will save you if they need to, but it's they will save anybody who needs to be saved. They're heroes. That's true, and 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 the same way with the military. I mean, I was yes. in the, I was in the military during the Vietnam uh, War, and um, we weren't um, <laughs> we weren't appreciated um, uh, for our service at right. that time. However, now I, I think it's it's a lot better for the military. But that's the other thing. Um, I know we only got a couple minutes till the break, but uh, when when we come back and and uh, Rabbi, I'd like to talk about what we can we can say to the military families too that are have lost all of their their um, sons and daughters and in uh, these endless wars that we're involved in now. Um, right. And uh, I, I would hope that um, we, we have some insight for us. And the other thing is, and I want to bring this up because I am now very um, aware when I'm standing in line at that, at that casket that I don't know what I'm going to say to that, uh, to that um, widow or, you know, or to her sons or something. You know, he's in a better place. It's, it's all that other kind of baloney that you try to say, uh, call right. me if there's anything, what, what can I do? Is there anything I can do for you? What can you do for somebody? Um, you know, if you can, when we come back, if you can tell us a couple of things we might be able to do for him other than I pray for him all the time. Um, other than that, um, I'd be happy to hear it. And, and Donna, Donna has something here. I also have a, a couple of things when we get back to, <clears throat> I, it's interesting to me is listening to you, the whole post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, that's actually a form of grieving, I sure would presume. And so I'd like to talk a little bit more about that when we get back to. And okay. also, um, I'm sure you've read When Bad Things Happen to Good People from Rabbi <laughs> Kushner. Yep. And there's there's an excerpt in there that I I'd, I'd like to talk about too about the tapestry and see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, so uh, so what we'll do, and by the way, the and the Jewish Book of Why, <laughs> I have yes. I have a copy of that. Anyway, um, uh, anyway, uh, we we take a lot from uh, from um, everywhere. Um, and we try to use it in our lives. And so, and I know you're a, a wonderful authority on grief, uh, sir. So um, we're going to come back. And so when you, we're going off a little bit about a minute early. So when you come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. 
FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Well, Rabbi, before we we jumped off a little bit early, um, we we had we posed you a few questions. Now, you, you, this is not a memory test, okay? We know what we're going to ask you, but if you would like to address something, you can. What would you like? Well, l- let me talk a little bit about what you say, especially what you say to kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a kid, you know, daddy is killed in a fire. Whether he's a firefighter or he's just a normal person, you know what I mean. Yes, I Firefighters do. are normal people, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, so what I'm, do you I'm say not sure. to kids? <laughs> so I believe that, that there are layers of what, what we have to do with kids. The first and most important thing is, is we have to make them feel safe. Because what happens with kids is that if one person dies, they worry that they're going to die. And it's not logical, but it's normal. And so when kids ask me, I mean, if, if I officiate at their grandparents' funeral, for example, and I always talk to the kids, and sometimes the kids want to talk at the funeral, so we talk about this, me and the kids, without their parents. I don't want their parents present. This is between mm-hmm. me and them. And, and I ask them, what are they afraid of? And they say, well, I'm afraid that I'm going to die early like he did or she did. And I say to them, I know that. You never deny their feelings. I said, I understand how you feel. I would feel exactly the same way. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you physically safe. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. And I am hoping that nothing bad is going to happen to you. And I am hoping that nothing bad is going to happen to me. I expect to live a very long, long time. You're supposed to say very three times. (laughs) I don't know why. It's one of those things that seems to work and resonate. I'm going to live a very, very, very long time. And so you don't have to worry, my kid, 
that I'm going to leave you because that's what they're afraid of. Somebody else is going to leave them. So I try to say to them at the very beginning, right after death, you know, you're going to be okay because I'm going to make sure you are. And then after that, and this applies to not just kids, this applies to everybody. First thing you have to do for for the mourners is to take care of them immediately and make sure they're safe. Now, I watch Chicago Fire. You know, I love it. It's one of my favorite shows. And one of the things they do best is during a fire, they will take care and they will move the relatives to someplace that's safe. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And right. then after that, what happens, well, unfortunately what happens is if your friend lost somebody, so the tendency in our world, because we don't know any better and we never learn from anybody, is to, is to maybe give them a week and take care of them for a week. And then you figure, okay, they're fine. We have our own lives. We're going to go back to our own homes, our own lives, our own families, and they're going to be okay. Well, they're not going to be okay because death doesn't go away. Mourning doesn't go away. So the second thing, I believe, is you got to stick around with them. you got to care for them. you got to do their laundry twice a week. Take them out to dinner once a week. Take their kids to school once, twice a week. Real thing. Don't say, if you need me, call me, because they'll never call you. Walk right, in the I door have, I have and say, like we're going to dinner, you and yeah. us right now. We're going to dinner. And take them out and make them know that they're not forgotten about. And then there's another thing that clergy would talk about, and that is that we need to make sure that our relationships with Everyone we know are in good shape mm-hmm. because you don't know what's co- what could happen to you tomorrow or the other person. You don't know what's going to happen. They could die. What if you're angry with each other? Is that how you want it to be? You can't let that happen. So you right. have to try to live your lives with people so that your relationships are clean. Uh, because if you don't do that, you're going to carry around those memories forever. You have to lay them gently down, is my phrase. You have to lay down that pain. Otherwise, you're going to keep it on, you could have carried it on your shoulders for the rest of your life. And that makes two deaths, not one. Yeah, okay. And, well, and, it's and, hard. And I have, a, I have a question here. Um, I have a friend in... in uh, and they've recently had a big, um, they'd had a, a family death. And um, this, it was a couple that uh, they were together, you know, 60 years in marriage and all that. And, and, right. uh, and, uh, and the, um, the, the woman died. She, was, she had Alzheimer's and things like that. But uh, he, has, um, he has now, um, he's, he's, of course, you know, reaching out for help. But he goes to the cemetery every day. And he sits there in a in a folding chair. He takes it and sits yeah. next to his wife's grave in in the rain, 
um, and everything. And so uh, they're concerned about him. They're concerned about his. They're right his, to be concerned about it. Yes, and they should be. And I agree with that. And but it's there's very difficult for them to. Uh, and I I know they've talked to me about it. It's very difficult for them to say you know. You're 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 hurting your own health. You you got to be careful. Right. You you got and all that stuff. So uh, they don't know exactly how to broach that. Do you have any uh, advice for this? Uh, well, this it seems to. I mean, and, uh, and I've heard about this kind of thing before, where people just cannot. What he's doing is he's saying, "I can't let her die." I know she's mm-hmm. dead. I know she's buried out here in a cemetery, but in my heart. I can't lay her gently down. I just can't do that. It's too painful. I can't do that. And so I'm going to be out there with her every day, which eventually will lead to his death from something. Mm -hmm. Either I'll have a heart attack or he'll get sick or something. But what's really happening is that he's not able to move on. You know... Listen, I have this wonderful example, which I did in synagogue this morning as part of a memorial service, a community memorial service. So I filled up a glass of water, and I held it out in my hand, and I said, how much does this glass weigh? Some people said six ounces, some people said eight ounces, some people said 12 ounces. I said, let me tell you the secret. The secret is... It doesn't matter how much it weighs. It matters how long you hold it. Because if you hold it for five minutes, that's fine. Okay? But if you hold it for an hour, your arm's going to get tired. If you hold it all day, your arm's going to feel like it's falling off. You won't Mm -hmm. be able to use your arm tomorrow. So he said that's what grief is all about. It's normal to grieve, but you can't hold on to it all day, as it were. You have to lay them gently down. Mm -hmm. You have to let them die. And this guy that you're talking about, he has a real problem letting his wife die. He knows in his head she's dead, but we don't live in our heads. We live in our hearts. And he doesn't know how he's going to survive without her. They've been married a long time. But still, he's got to get the kind of help that he needs so that he can begin to layer gently down and have a life for himself. Because right now, he has no life for himself. She died. He's on the way. Right. That's and so I'm going to recommend your book, that G- uh, GPS for Grief and Healing, uh, to that family uh, I would like you to, Rabbi, let us know how we can we we the listeners uh, um, can benefit from that book. Where how can we get it? How can we get the book? You can get it on. Um, well, it depends. You want to read it on Kindle? Get it on Kindle dot com, or get it on Amazon if you want a hard cover, soft cover copy. Mm-hmm. You know, and or all you got to do is Google GPS for healing. Okay. And magically, I don't know how it works, <laughs> but magically, you're taken to Amazon and Kindle. 
Okay, well, we're going to do that because this is a this is a wonderful, a wonderful uh, book and a wonderful show. Um, the now you've talked about children and how to talk to them, um, and uh, and um, I guess uh, the only other thing I can I can come come up with is I'm I'm still standing in that line and I'm I'm approaching this widow now right. and and I and I'll say we'll be here. Uh, if you need us, I don't know what to say. Okay, to them. right, right, because we yeah, don't know so, what to say. That's right. So I have a suggestion. Go ahead. Who says you have to say anything? No, that's true. You're there. You're there. You're there. Yeah. Yeah. Just give her a hug. Say mm-hmm. I miss him, and move on. There you go. That's mm-hmm. great. That's She's great. not gonna. She she may not remember what you say. Right. Now after the funeral. Um, I mean, that's why in Jewish tradition, we do all that business after the funeral. Ah. We go to the home and we comfort the mourners. We don't have open caskets. We don't have wakes. We don't do any of that. Because <coughs> we don't want anybody, you know, looking at dead people who can't look back at you. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. gawking. We don't, we don't, and we don't want to pay a... Um, Somebody, uh, cosmetologist, we don't want to spend a thousand dollars making them look like they're still living. They're not living; they're dead. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. We prepare their bodies. Men prepare men. Women prepare women. It's the holiest commandment there is. And we wash their bodies twice: one for physical cleanliness, one for spiritual cleanliness, and then we wipe them off. And then we dress them in a white shroud. Everybody gets a white shroud. Doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, nothing matters. No clothes, white shroud. Okay? And we place you in a wooden, not metal, wooden coffin. And we close the box. We put a, a packet of earth from the land of Israel as a connection between you and Israel, the Holy Land. And we, that's it. Now, sometimes we will sit overnight between the preparation and the funeral, and members of the congregation will sit in the funeral home and read spiritual kinds of books. Mm-hmm. I give them a whole suitcase of stuff that they can look at, and then the funeral is tomorrow morning. But So we don't have, we don't ever stand in line. We don't do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have flowers at funerals either. Because flowers are beautiful, death is not. Mm-hmm. Death is not always a tragedy. I always like to say the angel of death is not always an enemy. When he comes right. to put an end to pain and suffering. But it ain't pretty. Flowers are pretty. And flowers die in three days. It's a total waste of money. That's true. It's interesting that you bring that up, and in before the break, I was talking about Rabbi Kushner and yes. when bad things happen to good people, and there was one piece. I really, it was years ago that I read that book. I remember being moved by it, but the one, one thing that stood out was, I like analogies, and I can tell you do too. Analogies are how we relate, and he speaks about a tapestry, 
and how beautiful it is on one side and but to to have that beauty on one side you flip it over and it's all knots and it's in disarray and are you familiar with that piece i haven't read that book in a long time i read it four times but it's been Mm -hmm. a couple years since i've read it yeah and and to me that that kind of set a tone for me as far as an analogy goes of that's exactly right uh, just like life and death, here's this tapestry on one side for everything to be organized and beautiful and straight. You have to have the opposite is true. Yes. Yes. And uh, and then, of course, now, now we're going to go back to Donna and I's difference. Uh, Donna's already, she's going to be cremated. She even has the box already. And thank you card. So she's ready. Thank you for coming. You are I think prepared, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> you know why? <laughs> That is part of my coping mechanism, having lost a couple of people, you know, my mother and my grandmother, um, very, very deep effect on me, one for the time, you know, untimely with my mom and my grandmother, it was just a bloody mess. It was a tragedy. It was traumatic. Mm -hmm. And they happened within a year of each other. And I walked away going, I do not want my children to ever have to go through this. Uh, with me. So I am going to do everything that I can to get my life in order, our relationships in order, and my death in order. Yeah, so so she's already paid for the thing, and she's got a box, and she's got a thank you card. I, you know, All I right, mean, here's, let me, here's the, let me, how do you know who to, to mail it to, though? Go ahead. Listen, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let me tell you why I disagree with cremation, okay? Go ahead. Sure. You didn't ask me, but nobody asks me. I just say what I think. When you bury somebody, you know where they are. Cemeteries can be a place of healing. Let's say you and your mother didn't get along. Mm -hmm. You can go out there and make peace with her. You can forgive her. You can apologize to her. You can thank her for all the good times you spent together. You can say goodbye to her. When you cremate, God knows what happens to the ashes. I know people, and you know people, that keep them on their mantelpiece. I know if they don't fall over and the maid is vacuuming the rug. <laughs> that, would not, would, that would not be good. That would not be a good thing. No, it wouldn't. But So I see cemeteries as places of healing. They're not just places to bury the dead. They're places to, to complete your relationship if you will. And I'm in full agreement with you. Matter of fact, not only uh, with not keeping, there's, my kids know not to keep my ashes, so to speak, because their kids and their kids' kids aren't going to have any idea who great-grandma Donna was, you know? (laughs) And they're not going to have any interest and somebody's going to throw you in the garage or in the closet. And and all uh, kidding aside, um, that it, it so like my grandmother and my mother were buried okay so they yeah. were cremated but they were also buried so they right. do have a place okay yeah, and and then I, I rabbi I, then i took the opposite one i said okay wait a minute i went to theirs they're gonna have to come to mine so um so I, I I paid for mine the box the whole thing and the, and the makeup maybe they can do something for me I mean, finally, 
you know, fine. With, with the makeup. Okay. Fine. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe they could. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not looking too alive at the moment. So I'm hoping they were. So isn't it funny, just the three of us having this conversation, there's there's three different, uh, there's three different perspectives right. here. They're all respectful. They're all uh, uh, good right. and good intention. And, and I think that's the point of the show is understanding that everybody mourns differently and they are coming from a different, I would say philosophical, but it, because I think we're all like-minded, but a different mm -hmm. perspective. Right. There's something that I'd like to get into, and I, and I see it's almost closing time, and I know about closing time, but... <laughs> yes, You've got seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I know that. So, <laughs> until the little screen says, I know, I know how he does it, yes. Yes, yes. So... <laughs> Um, I want to talk theologically for a minute. Okay. The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, Harold Kushner once gave a talk at a rabbinical conference, and he said that most people think that the title of his book is Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah, and he told us why that's not true. He says, because if I were going to write that book, it would be three words long, and no <laughs> publisher will publish a book of three words. What are those three words? Bad things happen to good people because they do. Uh -huh. Right. That's it. That's why he wrote the book he wrote. Now, but I, I must believe in hope. I must believe in a world that's filled with hope. Okay? And I just read... Um, about the the terrible disaster in Manchester, England, at the at the concert. So there was an article that I'm looking at from last Sunday's New York Times about um, two guys who are homeless are being praised as heroes because they helped the victims of the Manchester Arena bombing. One guy was panhandling, and and the bomb went off, and he went to the aid of victims, comforting a girl who had lost her legs, wrapping her in a T-shirt, cradling a dying woman. Uh, the other guy says he pulled nails out of children's arms and faces. Mm. And he, one of them says, just because I'm homeless doesn't mean I don't have a heart. I'm not human still. I'd like to think someone would come and help me if I needed the help. Now, Rabbi Mel Glazer believes in a world of hope. And bad things happen, and I know that, and you know that. Mm -hmm. But good things happen, mm -hmm. especially in tragedies. I mean, there was an article in the, now I'm looking at an article in last week's New York Post, where Ariana Grande says she will return to Manchester for a benefit concert. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to do that, but she does, mm -hmm. because she wants to make it better. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying that even out of tragedy, even out of trauma, even out of death, no matter what kind of death it is, but particularly trauma, and, you know, there is good out of trauma. So people ask me, Rabbi, why is there evil in the world? My answer is so that good people can stand up and do something about it. Hmm. I don't right. know any other answers. That's all I got. 
Well, I tell you, this is wonderful. And my hope is I hope to get to meet you someday in person. I'd love and the to second thing is I hope that people will buy your book, a GPS for Grief and Healing, um, because you're already helping all of us uh, at, at this time. Um, well, thank you. And is there, when are you, when, now you're going down to the, like you're going to be in the area of the villages down there. In, uh, I'm going to be in the villages yeah. beginning in July, yes. July. Now that I read about that place, and I was I was very tempted to go down there myself. Uh, well, you're you old know. enough, my friend, so you could. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is that uh, yeah, there's I have a, a few things holding me here, but um, I have a wife that's uh, that's got Alzheimer's, and she's been in um, in the nursing home for over two years now. Oh, and uh, one of the things that you said earlier is uh, is uh, dealing with it as 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 it happens now and uh and that's exactly what a lot of people do and some people can't do it they can't even they they warehouse their um they warehouse their their people and i think some of that has to do with with the with the mourning the grief they can't they can't handle it so right and so um you got one parting shot on 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 hope for us rabbi before we jump off here well, you're showing a lot of hope because you could warehouse your wife. Yes. You could put her in some place and you could go live, you know, a free life, unencumbered. But that's not the woman you married. Mm-hmm. The woman you married is still there and and she's still there. Even though she may not even know you anymore. Does she know you anymore? Uh, on yeah, she forgets me on occasion, uh, but, but she pretty much knows me. Well, so does um, your daughter, but we can't help that. Yeah, well, she does that on purpose. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah, but your, I mean, even if your wife doesn't know your name, she knows that you are somebody special to her. Right. right. That's right. She may and, not uh, remember your name. Right. But, but she I'll knows. Tell you, well, I want to thank you how much you know. how much help you've done for all of us here. Well, thank I appreciate you for your me. kind words. Um, and where can uh, when are you coming back to um, to radio? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> you get me a sponsor, and I'll come back sooner. Okay, we'll get you one. All right. I'm. A, <laughs> looks like uh, looks like we're at the end of our show. Rabbi, thank you again. Um, I thank appreciate you. you. And uh, next week, hopefully, we're going to have um, uh, Kent Bevan, uh, who is a, I know he'll be there, um, an attorney with uh, Dicer Taylor in Kansas City. He's done a lot of insurance um, defense work. Hopefully, we're going to have a, 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 um, an SIU investigator from an insurance company. That has to be confirmed. But I want to thank you for being here, and I, we hope we helped. Uh, when you come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.